Welcome, and thank you for tuning into the Monroe College True Crime Blind Justice Podcast. The crisis of crime and mental health in our communities impacts all of us. Hear from experts on the front lines in law enforcement, law, and human services about the criminal justice and human response to crime, substance abuse, and mental illness. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Professor Danielle Thomas. I'm a part of Monroe College's School of Criminal and Social Justice. It's my honor to be working with you this morning. The name of our podcast, Episode 10, is going to be Unsolved and Solvable Crimes, Understanding the Criminal Mind. The first 48 hours are deemed critical in the investigation of crimes. When the case goes cold, how do investigators use their skills and experience to understand the criminal mind and to track killers? What errors lead to unsolved cases? Is the expansive use of DNA and public DNA databases harmful to our privacy interests? What I'd like to do is introduce our prestigious panelists, Professor Chen and Dr. Coughlin, both of Monroe College School of Criminal and Social Justice. Professor Chen had 20 years of law enforcement, 15 years as a detective investigator, he investigated homicides, felony assaults, non-fatal shootings, robbery, burglary patterns, and domestic violence cases. Sex Crimes Unit investigated rape and child maltreatment cases and Intelligence Division Gang Intelligence Unit gang investigations. Our second esteemed uh, colleague is Dr. Coughlin. He's a clinical psychologist specializing in public and police safety psychology a retired NYPD detective and a past visiting law enforcement fellow with an International Association of Chiefs of Police. He is a program director of the Master of Science in Forensic Psychology program at Monroe College King's Graduate School. He also operates a private practice in Great Neck, New York, where he exclusively treats members of law enforcement and other public safety and emergency response personnel in psychotherapy. He is the New York Area Clinician for the Drug Enforcement Administration's Employee Assistance Program. He is licensed to practice in New York, New Jersey, and Florida. Okay, so let's begin. Why are the first hours and days following a crime critical to an investigation? The most important thing in any criminal investigations are leads. And oftentimes, uh, those leads can dry up very, very fast. The other thing, as I would often say, is that you don't want the perpetrator to have a head start. And when they have a head start, that gap widens a lot more. So one of the most important things is to get to the scene as quickly as possible and interview witnesses as well as even the victim. Right. So that's critical because that's where the foundation is. That's where you get the who, what, when, where, why and how. So that crime scene is important also because the crime scene tells you a story, the weapon that's used, the injuries sustained by the victims, as well as also the location. So uh, getting back to the point, the leads are extremely important because once the leads dry up, you're basically uh, trying to get more information. Just to give you an example, I had a homicide case in a housing development, and what took place was the individuals there that was involved in the shooting, got into their car and drove away. But what happened was, is that the community wasn't talking, the community wasn't giving us information. So what I've learned from my experience is that when the community is not talking and is not 
information coming into us, your perpetrators from the community. And so the important part is, is that you get to the scene as quickly as possible, interview victims and witnesses, and also get the community to give you information because those leads are really critical to get to the suspect or even identify the suspect and arrest the suspect in this case. So leads are very critical. Thank you, George. I appreciate you. My next question is, why are some cases involving violent crimes easier to solve than others? Sure, I can speak a bit to that. You know, often when we see crimes of violence, it's not uncommon for the uh, offender to be known to the victim. So in those cases, we're more likely to establish close familiarity between offender and victim and likely get better leads on that. When we're talking about stranger violence, where the offender is a stranger to the victim, that automatically makes it more challenging, right? Absent other outside evidence that might help us, but automatically that makes it a bit more challenging. And when we think about that unknown offender, especially if we're thinking about people that have committed serial offenses or multiple offenses, one of the things that will make it more and or less easy at times is the degree of behavioral evidence that the person leaves behind at the scene. So how they went about committing the crime and any particular specific behaviors that are specific to that offender that we can then link through case linkage over time. Uh, so the more sort of personal characteristics, the more sort of signature behavior left behind at the scene, the more commonalities that we can find linking crimes together, whether through ways people went about the crime or specific personality details they leave behind at the crime, can make it easier to link. However, when you have a more stable offender who's more controlled and less likely to leave those things behind at the scene, uh, you're less likely to be able to develop case linkage. Right. So sometimes when you have a more destabilized offender, uh, they're more likely to leave behind behavioral evidence at the scene. And so when you have a more stable offender, sometimes it is more difficult. Thank you, Dr. Coughlin. Just to add to that, is that what makes stranger criminal acts so much harder to investigate? It's, it's certainly one of the things that's more difficult to identify a likely offender if it is a stranger. Often when the person is known to the victim, it becomes easier to identify. Thank you. My next question, as law enforcement professionals, why is it important to have a good understanding of the psychology of crime and criminal behavior? A crime scene tells you a story in terms of the weapon that's used, the blood spatter at the scene, the victim in itself, the brutal or the violence of it. It tells you a whole story in terms of the anger, the rage that is used at the scene. Even the choice of weapon that's used in terms of a knife or a blunt instrument or perhaps even a sharp instrument in terms of an, a gun, that is. So when you arrive at the scene, you have to look at the scene in terms of the behavior or what's going on. What's the interaction between the perpetrator as well as the victim? So it gives you an indicator in terms of where you're going to go with this investigation. For example, let me just give an example here. Women and children often are injured or seriously injured or even die in the hands of someone they know. So we know that. That's in studies out there. So you understand that piece. Going back to the part about stranger perpetrators, that's very difficult to work these cases. And these types of cases involves a community. It involves eyewitnesses. And this is where detectives have to also be creative because 
commonly we use crime stoppers and post up flyers as well. So the thing that a detective needs is also to be persistent. Uh, they have to be tenacious. They have to be determined to work these cases. These cases are very difficult to solve, especially like robbery patterns. So what I'm trying to say is that the crime scene tells you a story in terms of the brutality, the violence, the weapon that's used, the victim as well. So you get to understand the behavior of the individuals there that's associated with the crime. I would add just a bit to that as well. You know, many times, as Professor Chen noted, the personality of the offender is going to play out in the crime scene. So you can learn a lot about the personality of the offender by the behaviors before, during, and after the crime. So, for example, when we look at an offender such as Dennis Rader and we look at his crime scenes and you look at how he managed the, the victims, how he uh, took care of the bodies afterwards, the way he tied them up, the way he kept the bodies fairly neat and the crime scenes fairly neat, the suggestion is that you're dealing with a more organized, more stable, meticulous person. You're also going to see those personality traits play out in their personal life. So those traits that you can take away from the crime scene, those behavioral traits that you could take away from the crime scene, when you're looking at a list of offenders or people that you want to interview, you'll find those personality traits often in the person. And those will come out on interview or in other ways. Take an offender like Richard Chase, who was schizophrenic, his crime scenes were a mess. They were absolutely disorganized. They were chaotic. They were victims of opportunity. He made no effort to clean up after himself or to try to hide the crime. And you see that play out in his mental illness, right? So the mind of the perpetrator is acting out at the crime scene in certain ways. And so you'll often see those things. The crime scene is often a reflection of personality traits or other mental issues regarding the offender. Dr. Coughlin, great. You took us into our next question. So if you could briefly describe some of the common traits and life experiences that serial offenders have in common, such as sexual predators, serial murderers, and arsonists. One of the common traits that we often see among serial offenders, uh, we see a degree of sadism often. And thinking of sadism clinically, sadism is the feeling of satisfaction, sometimes sexual satisfaction, the feeling of pleasure that someone derives from causing another human being pain. So knowing that I'm inflicting pain on someone gives me a degree of psychological satisfaction. Uh, we'll often see that kind of sadism in offenders and serial offenders. And again, we'll often see that kind of behavior play out in their personal lives through bullying techniques and other kind of uh, overdominant personality types. Often we'll also see narcissism, right? Narcissism is this inflated sense of superiority, inflated sense of uh, oneself, often with no reason to back up that inflated sense of self. Narcissism sometimes is our best friend when trying to investigate cases because often offenders will become so convinced that they're the smartest person in the room, which is what a narcissist does, that they will often believe themselves uncatchable. Uh, and they'll do all sorts of things, they'll make mistakes, they'll slip up, because they're fairly certain that they're smarter than uh, law enforcement. So narcissism is sometimes our best friend. Thank you, Dr. Coughlin. If you or Professor Chen can explain your personal thoughts on the benefits, challenges of advances in DNA technology, especially in helping to solve crimes? The uh, DNA technology was relatively new when I was just about leaving law enforcement. Let me just talk briefly about that. We have a system called CODIS, 
And CODIS basically is a database that is throughout the United States, and every state has a database that stores DNA. So detectives, it's important for law enforcement to use technology to their advantage because the landscape is very challenging. The landscape has been changing as a result of the technology that's being used. For example, facial recognition, you have DNA, you have also uh, family DNA, you have also cell phone technology. So all that technology investigators have to use and be up on as well. So DNA can also help solve in terms of murder cases and sex crimes cases, with particular rape cases. As one uh, scientist mentioned, that DNA is like six planet Earth. And within that six planet Earth, in order to get that same replica or DNA, it would be several million times over before you see that same DNA. So that, I thought that was pretty interesting in one of the court testimony that was provided by the medical examiner's office. But so what I'm trying to say is we have to stay on top of the technology to stay ahead in terms of perpetrators and because it's a changing landscape today. Uh, it's the old days of gumshoe detectives knocking on doors. It still exists, but the technology, it's fast moving. It's changing constantly. And that whole landscape is just brings a new nuance to police work. Expanding on Professor Chin's point about testimony, I think it's an important point. We could think about solving crimes. I mean, identifying the perpetrator, getting the subject in custody is certainly one piece of solving a crime. But getting a conviction is a completely different piece, right? And so to that piece about testimony, I think one of the benefits of DNA is being able to show jurors that beyond a reasonable doubt, this is in fact the perpetrator, right? I think in today's day and age, jurors come from a place where they're used to watching various crime shows and things of this nature, and they become convinced that that's automatically going to be a piece of the evidence. And so I think jurors are expecting to see hard science as part of the evidence. And so I think one of the benefits that DNA brings is in more like becoming more likely to secure a conviction, because I think it becomes more convincing to the jury when they see that kind of forensic science. Absolutely. Just to piggyback off of that, one of the emergent sciences is genealogy. And genealogy is like near and dear to my heart. It's, it's one of those things where I don't want to put my DNA in it, but I love all of the results you get from it. <laughs> Are there ethical concerns, especially involving privacy, with the use of these databases to assist law enforcement in solving crimes? There is some debate in the field about uh, the ethical use of it. Largely, that concern lies in informed consent. The people who are submitting their samples, what is the informed consent that they are being given? Are they being explained exactly how far it might go, where their DNA might be used? So I think the first piece is about informed consent. I think the other piece about the concern is also is in standardization. Right. You have many different companies out there doing these services with no oversight whatsoever. We don't know that there's a standardized process for how the DNA is being collected, how the DNA is being analyzed across multiple agencies out there doing this work. And with no oversight, with no governmental oversight being able to go in there and check that there is a standardization, we can't be completely certain that the lab techs, that there's not human error involved in how the lab techs collected or analyzed the data, et cetera. So I think until we have that process standardized, I think there'll always be concerns. 
Dr. Coughlin, may I ask you a question just in regards to the standardization of genealogy? Isn't it just a tool and the rest of the information that's derived from the databases is going to rely on the law enforcement agency to make a nexus between that person that could be the perpetrator or the victim for that matter, because they also find unidentified victims. Isn't the burden of the DNA information obtained, isn't that burden on the police officers or the law enforcement agencies to prove whatever is in the genealogical database, as opposed to just using that outright? Because I think there will be ethical concerns if we use that as the only basis. And so what I do like is that police agencies come into it afterwards, and then they have to build the case. And they are responsible for making sure that that name, that person, that association is valid based upon the evidence that they find. Am I correct in that assumption? Certainly. uh, No one piece of evidence should be the only piece of evidence presented. It should be in the context of a larger investigation. But I think there's an old saying, garbage in, garbage out. And so I think when we're looking at evidence, if the evidence has not been collected properly, it's, if it's been contaminated any way along, you know, in law enforcement, we collect evidence, we have a chain of custody where we know every single hand that touched every single piece of evidence. I'm not willing to believe that that goes on in this genealogy DNA collection. My concern is the privacy issues. So uh, let's say I'm a consumer and I use one of these uh, companies and I submit my DNA just so I can hopefully check on my genealogy, and then to find out that somewhere along the line, the law enforcement is able to subpoena and then get my family DNA to connect me with a potential crime. So I have really a serious concern about privacy issues, you know, as a consumer. So again, it does raise ethical issues, and law enforcement also has to look at and balance the issues of privacy and also you know, uh, civil rights as well. Thank you so much. Let's talk about a couple of recent cases. The Gilgo Beach murders in Long Island. This was a cold case. A recent arrest was made. What are your thoughts on the history of the case? What initially went wrong, if anything? Did advances in technology lead to a break in this case? Can you comment on the profile of the Rex Hureman based on what was shared in the media? And also, just to start off, one of the young ladies that was murdered in the Gilgo Beach murders, I'm not too sure if he's actually charged with her murder, but she is an additional victim. Her mother was killed by her sister. Her sister had a psychological break. She had schizophrenia and she killed her mother. So on top of, you know, the pain, it was four daughters, on top of the pain of losing a sister, Her mother was also killed by the hands of another sister. Okay. Dr. Coughlin or George, you want to start? I have no more knowledge of Rex Hureman than I've read in the media. Uh, So I just want to make that clear. I am informed only by whatever's in the media. The original evidence, I believe, was collected first in 2010, although there was some belief that maybe victims go back to 2007, perhaps earlier. In the beginning of this case, there are questions going back to the issues that went on with the police chief in Suffolk County and with whether or not he purposely did not allow his investigation to cooperate with the FBI at some point because of his own legal 
problems at the, at the time. And so there were high level uh, concerns where the police chief there had a case being brought against him, allegedly for an assault of a perpetrator that had stolen things from his vehicle. Um, and he had some complaints against him. And so there's a thought that he did not want the FBI too deeply into the case because they didn't, he didn't want to be too close to that. And so there was lack of cooperation between agencies at some point during the case. And that really impeded the ability of, of, uh, of the case to move forward. An early profile developed on Hurman back in 2011 was actually fairly accurate. It described him as being a, a white male somewhere in his 30s or 40s likely fairly successful, owned his own home, had a motor vehicle so you could transport bodies, conceal and dump, et cetera, and that he would live on the south shore of Long Island. That was one of the other pieces. And so granted, that's still a wide range of suspects, but an early profile was fairly accurate now that we look at, at, at Huberman now. And so eventually advances in DNA after the case was reopened in 2022, and a task force was set up between state, local, and federal authorities. Uh, increases in, in uh, DNA type technology did allow a uh, piece from one of the burlap bags to be connected to Huberman, and then the investigation went from there. But it was certainly thanks to uh, advances in DNA technology. I'd just like to add also to this that sometimes these cases can sit idle, and it requires direction and leadership from the very top to get these cases back on the uh, queue. So um, when cases stay idle, There'd be a, a small group of detectives, but they're not really spending a lot of time on it. So when leadership, when new leadership is introduced into the picture, and then let's get new fresh eyes to examine the case and go over everything, and then also be able to get that technology in terms of DNA to uh, link that evidence to the suspect in this case. So a case can sit idle. It takes new leadership to get a pair of fresh eyes on it, and then restart that investigation again, using the technology that's available to investigators. Let's talk about the Idaho murder case, the quadruple homicide in Moscow, Indiana. What evidence did investigators discover that led to the arrest of Brian Kohlberger? What can any of you share regarding his profile based on what was shared in the media? Yeah, um, I could start there. And again, you know, my, my knowledge of this uh, suspect only goes as far as the media reporting of it um, and some documentaries that have since been produced out there in regard to it. There's still a gag order on this case, uh, and so a lot of information hasn't gotten out in regard to the investigation. But when we look back at some of the historical folks from his childhood, we look back at reports from people in his teenage years and his, uh, his early 20s, we go back into his early life. Reports that I've read indicate that at some point he was moved out of in-person high school for some unknown reason. He was moved into online schooling for some reason. Well, they won't disclose what that reason was currently because of privacy issues. Then he was moved into a technical school at some point. There are reports in the media, at least, that he had uh, addiction issues in his uh, teenage years. There was heroin addiction. That there was a diagnosis of an eating disorder. And so there are reports in the media of a history, a, a psychiatric history and a treatment history back there. Although how that correlates necessarily to the crimes is, isn't really clear just yet. We do know that he was a student of forensic psychology. Uh, we do know that he studied underneath Dr. Catherine Ramsland, who is one of the leading serial offender experts in the country. And so like some of these folks sometimes do, 
he was building up a repertoire of skills and knowledge and abilities in order to carry out these tasks. You know, we look at some offenders like BTK, who went out and became an ADT technician at some point in his life so that he could learn how to uh, override people's alarm systems, right? So in the same way, we see this perpetrator having a lifelong interest in forensic psychology and serial offenders studying under the one of the most well-known serial offender experts in the country, again, developing that repertoire and that skill set. Yeah, what caught a break on that case for investigators was also the ability to use uh, cell phones and track uh, using GPS to track him as well. So that was a break in that case. And then be able to stitch the security cameras in terms of his movements from one location to another location uh, and then being able to bring him in and to interview him as well. So I think the technology that's used in terms of leading to a suspect and then the apprehension of a suspect is very crucial in this particular case. Absolutely. Thank you both. We have one more case that we can discuss briefly. Joan Benet Ramsey, her murder. This is absolutely a cold case. Were there errors made in an investigation and what should have been done differently? I think there were a number of errors made from very early on. I think any anyone who spent any time in law enforcement, I think, is aware that Missing Persons 101 involves a full search of the home, full and complete search of the home. So the idea that the basement of that home was not searched until much later in the day, and that the person who was allowed to go search that basement was the father who discovered the body, just allows for a terrible opportunity for evidence to become contaminated for evidence not to be gathered quickly enough in order to move the investigation forward. There were a tremendous amount of investigative missteps made early on. What to account for that is uncertain, whether it was an experience on the part of the agency and homicide investigations or on the investigators there. I'm not really certain, but many missteps early on in that case. And really a tragic case because uh, the mother died without ever knowing the identity of the offender, and the mother died of cancer, I believe, while members of the family were still under investigation for the murder. So uh, really a tragic case overall. I think there's uh, definitely a lot of missteps in this case. Uh, experience comes to one. Also, a child just doesn't die. A child dies in the hands of someone they know. I have my suspicion in terms of who may have been involved in a death. But I believe a lot of it is also the experience, as well as also there's politics involved in terms of which agency, district attorney's office, and the local police and sheriff's office. So I think a lot of it is a little power play, if I may. So you have that going on. And basic 101 is, uh, as Tom alluded to, is you search that whole, whole house from top to bottom and outside. That's basic 101. You lose the opportunity in terms of evidence. So you have someone or persons trampling through the house. Uh, then you have a long ransom note. Then you have the girl bound and all. So uh, it just doesn't add up. And usually for me, when it doesn't add up, the answer is right there in front of you. So I think a lot of things influenced the outcome of the case. There were too many hands involved. So that's just my experience from looking from the outside. I'm not at the crime scene. I'm not sure what the interaction and dialogue between the district attorney is, uh, the prosecutors, as well as also the detectives in the departments. But I can tell you from my experience, I did experience that myself on a couple of my cases. 
where you have outside influence and pressure that can also lead you in a different direction in terms of leads and, you know, and it can throw you off on a case. Sometimes with these investigations, you got to follow your gut. And if your gut takes you to a certain point, let's get the evidence, let's prove it. But sometimes you have outside pressure uh, that's applied to your supervisors as well as you to solve this case. And it just gets in the way of the investigators. But I think a lot of it is also a little power play going on too. I can be completely wrong. I hope I am, but I doubt it. I doubt it. I doubt it too. On behalf of Monroe College's School of Criminal and Social Justice, I'd like to say thank you for joining us for episode 10, Unsolved and Solvable Crimes, Understanding the Criminal Mind. Dr. Thomas Coughlin, Professor George Chen. I am Professor Danielle Thomas. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information on future episodes, you can follow along at Facebook at Monroe College, Instagram at Monroe College, Twitter at Monroe College. Have a great week.